Okay, so yes, oh, I need to look at the time so I don't go on too long. Right, we're looking at Exodus, uh, carrying on our series in Exodus this morning. Uh, there's quite a few different verses we're going to cover, but basically the end of chapter 15, the start of chapter 16, and the start of chapter 17. Um, so if you want to have those open, you can do, or it will appear up here later. I've uh, done that bit. Um, now, one of the things, I say this quite often when I'm speaking, uh, there's a difficulty in doing talks from the front, um, which is that you sort of have to say a sort of blanket thing to everybody. Um, and that's always a tricky thing about this kind of method, I think, of communicating. But I think it's especially difficult um, with the story that we're looking at this morning, um, because this is a story of huge things and tiny things. There's a, a stuff about oppression in there, about liberation, about literal survival, and also about snacks, about anger and despair and frustration, but also about tiny trivialities. And I don't know where all of those things sit for each of you. It would be really easy to stand up and glibly say, well, nobody in this room is literally in fear for our lives or worried about day-to-day -day tyrannical oppression, are we? And do a talk on that basis. But that might well not be true. There might well be people here for whom that is a daily reality. What I consider to be a triviality might be something that you consider to be really, really serious. And where your threshold for anger kicks in might be different than mine or the people of Israel that we're going to read about in this story. So there's, all these things are so relative and variable that it's really hard to stand up and do one thing that addresses all of it. Even if I knew all of your situations, I would have to sort of jump around going, if you think this thing, then maybe think this thing. If you're in this situation, then maybe consider it this way. And we'd be jumping around all over the place and we'd be here all day. So because of that difficulty, um, we're going to try and do things a little bit differently, just, uh, just for the next 20 minutes or so. And what I mean by that is, I'm not going to give you a sort of moral of the story for all of you to just take away. I'm not going to try and do a sort of piece of life application, like, oh, we've all looked at this together, and we've all concluded that what we ought to do is X, so therefore everybody now go do it. Because of that thing of the variability of all the things at play in this story. Does that make sense? So what we're going to do instead is I'm basically just going to say some things to maybe notice. <laughs> we're just going to look at the story together uh, and I'm going to sort of flag up some things that might be interesting um, for you to sort of pay attention to. Um, and really, you have to do the hard work this morning, sorry. <laughs> so your job uh, is... As we're doing that, as we're going through the story, I want you to just try and keep track for yourself of what resonates. Um, and that can be in all kinds of different ways. What I mean by that really is, if something jumps out to you, if something feels significant to you, if something feels uh, noteworthy, just try and keep track of that. Um, there's a few different ways that might happen. These are just some, it doesn't have to be one of these four. It might just be a case of familiarity. You might just hear a bit of the story and go, oh, I, can, I, I recognize that. It might be an encouragement. There might be something in there that you go, that makes me feel like that's going well, or I should do more things like that. That encourages me in that direction. There might be things that are challenges, that as we hear them, we go, oh, that makes me think maybe I'm not quite where I should be, or that makes me want to consider doing things differently. 
Or it might be that they throw up questions, and the way it resonates with you is just to make you go, I've got no idea. I don't get that. I don't understand. I'm curious. I want to go and find out more. But there might be all kinds of other ways that these bits resonate with you as well. And your job is just to try and keep track of some of them. One thing I do want to say about that is, when we do this, I think it's very easy to default to doing that about me, not me, like not me. <laughs> you're not all going to be thinking about me, about you, about ourselves, about I, you know? Uh, and I just want to encourage us, our brains will do that by default anyway. We'll think about how this resonates with myself and my situation, not mine, yours, you know. Uh, so I just want to encourage us as we do this to, if you can, try and think about ways that this might resonate for us collectively not just me personally. It's really hard to say this. Ourselves <laughs> sounds plural in English. You know what I mean. About us, not just as one individual. Everybody with me? Okay. Um, I've suggested some different levels of us, if you're not sure what I mean by that. You could think about how this resonates within Ebby. Uh, us as Ebby. Maybe this raises an encouragement or a challenge. You could think about us as the church more globally, like literally the entire church. You could think about us as citizens of the UK and the nation. You could think about us as the whole world. Um, or you might have a different us, a different community that you want to think about. But I just would encourage you, try and think about how these things resonate in a collective sense as well as a personal one. Uh, and then just one other little suggestion on that. You don't have to do this. Um, but I think there's something really significant about what we're doing here is interpreting this story. And I think there's something really significant about interpreting that together and not just keeping it in our own heads and our own notepads. And so if you want to, if you feel confident to, maybe try and find somebody afterwards, after the service or in the next week on a WhatsApp group or whatever, and just swap notes and just see if the things that resonated for you were the same things that resonated for them, or if they resonated in a different way for them. Ideally, if you want maximum bonus points for this, find somebody where it resonated in a different or even opposite way. And so one of the things that to you felt like an encouragement about Ebby, to them felt like a challenge about the whole church, you know? If you can find people who are actively thinking differently to you, then it broadens the whole scope of the way we're hearing the story. Does that make sense? Okay. So, uh, also, if it helps, if you haven't got pen and paper with you, this is just a little thing. Uh, if you're trying, struggling to keep up in your brain, uh, I did put a little digital version of this together. Uh, so if you've got your phone, you can bring that up and have it in front of you, and you can literally just tick things off as you go and be like, ooh, that one resonates as a challenge for Ebby. Tick in that box. So just if you're struggling to uh, keep up with all of this, uh, feel free to have that open. Uh, I'll leave that there for a second in case anybody wants it. I've no idea if you can scan it from that distance, but I thought it looked natty. Um, okay, so is everybody ready? That's your kind of briefing. Now I've got, what have I got? 15 minutes to actually give you some stuff to see how it resonates. So, uh, let's see. Let's see if we can get into this. I'm going to read those passages now. Um, see if anything jumps out to you on a first pass, and then I'll give you some prompts and you can see how those land with you. Okay, 
When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt! There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And that's where we're leaving the story, but if you want to find out what happens next after that cliffhanger, you can go carry on reading in chapter 17. Um, but we're just going to look at those, those three short bits now. So, I'm going to give you about a minute to get your immediate response uh, and just have a quick think to yourselves. What's the first thing that jumps out of you on hearing that story? It doesn't have to be anything big or clever or significant. Just the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that. What jumps off the page to you? <laughs> this is good because I'm really bad at silences. So if anyone else wants to say it out loud, that makes me feel way better. Nice. So we've got moans and groans. We've got the fact that they left comfort. Those are both great. Anybody else want to say anything out loud? They immediately forgot all the amazing miracles that had just happened to them and started focusing on the negative. 
All right, I'm going to take that one as my segue because that pretty much is my starting bit of food for thought. So I'll, give, I'll just give you a few of these prompts and again, just see if any of these resonate with you or what they sort of start think, making you think about. Um, I'm going to try really hard not to apply these or translate them into modern life. I'm just going to try and describe things and then you can see how they land. So a bit like Steve was saying there, I think overall this whole passage reads like a joke. Right? It's a sort of laughable, absurd situation. So the, the start to end of what we just had, basically, you can summarize as we were in fear for our lives. We were enslaved. We wanted our freedom. We got it, miraculously. We want captivity back. We prefer death and cucumbers. Uh, the cucumbers reference is actually from Numbers 11, but there literally is a bit where they say, we, we miss the leeks and the garlic and the onions and the cucumbers that we used to have. And it's sort of silly, right? It's, it's ridiculous. You, you've gone from enslavement to freedom, but you want your snacks. It's, it reads like a joke. So if you think it reads like a joke, maybe one thing to think about is, what is it that makes that punchline? What is it that makes that so laughably ridiculous? Is it the fact that they want trivial things at the cost of important ones? A bit like Jesus will go on to say later, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Like, is it just ridiculous because they're making a trade-off between freedom and leaks? <laughs> is it because of the thing of hopping back and forth and just the sort of um, preposterousness of fighting to get out of one situation only to be craving to go immediately back into it. When I was a kid I used to be terrified of sand and so I made my parents sit me in a cardboard box on the beach. It would be a bit like me going, Mom, I really can't bear the sand, put me in the box. And then as soon as she put me in the box going, why have you put me in a box, put me back on the sand? Um, I don't quite know if hypocrisy is the right word but is it that thing of demanding one thing and then as soon as you're given it craving what you had before. This, this sort of double standard or the self-reflexive thing of it. I don't know. What is it that makes this so laughable? The struggle of hardship. Well, maybe it, maybe it is partly to do with the fact that we know how it turns out and it's easier to laugh at this because we know that you know, there's a sort of happy ending to this story. Maybe if you're in the middle of it and you've been in the desert for three days with no water, maybe it's not so funny. So maybe it relies on the fact that we know where the story goes. Anyway, let's have a, a little ponder on that one. So now I'm just going to go through the story kind of beat by beat. Uh, this isn't all of them, there's loads more in there, but this is just a few to get you started. Okay, so see if any of these resonate with you about us together. The people of God had been in captivity. This moment, this story, marks their moment of liberation. They've fled Egypt, they've fled from captivity, they've gone through the Red Sea, the Red Sea is closed behind them. This is their moment of liberation. Does that feel familiar to anybody? <coughs> the liberation of these people comes at a human cost. Miriam celebrates both horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. The liberation involves the Egyptian slave masters who are following them drowning in the Red Sea. 
This isn't a James Bond film where the villains can just be bumped off and you never need to think about them again and you can just forget them in the general arc of the story. They might be the baddies in this particular story, but they're still humans. The liberation comes at a human cost. People died. The celebration begins immediately. The second they get through the Red Sea and they see it close up behind them, as soon as they put their feet on dry ground on the other side, Miriam grabbed the timbrel and they're all singing and dancing. The celebration begins immediately. This is a question more than a statement. <laughs> is the liberation complete at that moment? They've crossed through the sea. They're celebrating their moment of liberation. Does that mean the liberation is done? You're not getting any answers out of me. Just questions. <laughs> okay, so some people think there's still more to come. Maybe, I don't know. We can swap notes at the end. Miriam is a prophet. She sings about what God is like and the story of what just happened. Maybe that resonates. Straight after the moment of liberation comes a moment of hardship and seemingly of loss. And I think there might be a bit of a pattern here. You can certainly compare it to something like Luke 5. I've talked about this before, I'm sure, one of my favorite things, where Jesus calls the, the disciples by the, giving them this miraculous catch of fish. They wanted the fish. Jesus says, put your nets on the other side. They get this miraculous catch of fish. They haul up all this miraculous fish on the shore, and then they have to leave everything and follow him. And so the thing that they've just been given... As somebody said earlier, they immediately are asked to leave behind. And so the moment of liberation is followed immediately by a moment of loss. In this case, they don't have any water. Maybe that resonates. The people don't have the essentials to survive. In this case, they've gone three days without water in a desert. That is not a good situation to be in. They are unhappy. That's just the facts of what happened in the story. A question, maybe. Is that a righteous lament? When they make their unhappiness known that they've gone three days without water, me and Carolyn talked a few weeks ago about the importance of lament, about airing things that are sad. Is this an example of righteous lament? We've gone three days without water. We're going to die here. We could have died over there. Now we're going to die here. Is that crying out in righteous lament? Or is that a selfish grasping? You'll get water eventually. Stop being so greedy. Is it a lack of trust? This is the God who's just brought them out of Egypt like he promised he would. Does this show that they're not showing enough trust in your mind? Or actually, is this a wise exercise of responsibility? You've had no water for three days. Maybe tell somebody, see if you can do something about it. Because of their unhappiness, 
which you might think is righteous or you might think is unjustified, whatever you feel about it, because of the unhappiness they're experiencing, the people complain to and about their leader. They grumble against Moses. Does that resonate with you? Is that a challenge, an encouragement? Again, same questions. Is that a righteous lament or is that selfish grasping? It's one thing to be unhappy because you've got no water. What about the act of then grumbling against your leader because of that? Is that a righteous lament or is that selfish grasping? Is that a lack of trust? Why are they talking to Moses? Can't they talk straight to God? Or is that a wise exercise of responsibility? This person's been appointed as your leader. Who else's job is it supposed to be? Who else are you going to talk to? The leader cries out to God. Is that a good decision? Or is that somehow a sign of weakness? Is that exactly what a leader is supposed to do when they feel like they don't know where else to turn or how to solve the problem that's been brought to them? Or is that just pushing the responsibility out to somewhere else? And I wonder what you think that cry was. Was it angry? Was it desperate? Was it sad? God doesn't provide new water, if you look at it, but a means of changing the water that is there. They can't drink the water because it's bitter. God doesn't provide different water. God changes the water that is there already so that they can drink it. Maybe that resonates interesting question I think there was the means there all along God shows Moses a piece of wood that somehow changes the bitter water into drinkable water was that piece of wood there all along did they already have the means to make the water drinkable what does that signify God speaks to the people I think this is just really interesting to look at in detail and have a think about. What is the nature of the decree that the people get from God? Is it a threat? There's a lot of ifs. The statement from God is, if you do X, Y, Z, then ABC will happen, or will not happen, in fact. Is that a threat? Is that a promise? Is that just an axiom, just a statement of how things work? Is it something else? Also, just an interesting one to note, I think. Does God tell them what to do? I don't know about you, but when I feel like I'm lost and struggling, I want God to tell me what to do. When I first read this passage, I get jealous that they just get to hear straight from God. But look at it. Does God actually tell them what to do? The people come to a place with lots of water and they rest there. But, and somebody said this earlier, they then have to keep moving to preserve the liberation that they've had. And they're on the move and they're restless and then they get unhappy again. They wanted to stay resting where the water was, but they had to keep moving. Is that a real choice? All right, we'll rattle through these last, this last one. One question I think you can ask about this story or our story or any story, there's always a good pair of questions to ask. Where do you feel like we are? And who do you feel we should be in that place? That was the questions facing the Israelites at this moment. Who do you feel we should be in the place that we are?
that's it. I've just given you a load of things to ponder. I'd be really interested to hear any of your thoughts or resonances, and hopefully you want to talk to each other about them as well. Um, I'm just going to pray to close.